Yes, I'd like you to take your Bibles. I've got so much material, so I want you to turn to John chapter 17, uh, because I do want this to be understood uh, in such a way that God could use this in your life. This is a critical topic for you to have a great hold of and for it to have a great hold of your life and be seen in your life. In John chapter 17, let me set it up for you. Uh, Some of you have heard of the Lord's Prayer, right? And when you think of the Lord's Prayer, what do you think of? Our Father who art in heaven and so forth. And, And, you know, that's true, but it's a bit of a misnomer. Really, it should be described as the disciples' model of prayer. Uh, The intent of Jesus in giving that to them was to give them a model. This is how you should pray. And by the way, he wasn't even giving them a model for them to repeat. And the reason I know that is just before he gave them the model, he talked about he didn't want or he didn't see prayer to be effective that is repetitive and and cantation type type of prayers. So it was just to be an example, a, a sample of how you should pray. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. It's the real deal, the whole thing. And so I wanted to, can't take you through it all, but show you some significant parts about this particular prayer that has to do with the topic of this evening. Now, let me give you the setting. The Last Supper had already been completed. They had made their way to the Mount of Olives, and soon they would go into Gethsemane, And there you would probably know if you read the the Gospels, it was there that he was arrested and eventually he would die on the cross. So basically what we're reading is a prayer that Jesus prayed just hours before his arrest. And so I want to show you that. Look at the first couple of verses, first five, I think. Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Just in that one verse, it's been very interesting if you track the hour concept through the Gospel of John. In the early part of the Gospel of John, he would say, my hour has not come. It's not yet. Matter of fact, when he was in the wedding feast of Canaan, he told his mom, what do I have to do with this? My hour is not yet here. And so he told his brothers, when his brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast where they knew that the Pharisees were waiting to kill him, he told them, I'm not going because my hour has not yet come. But now his hour has come. And what is his hour that has come? It's when he would surrender his life as a substitute. Penal substitutionary death would occur not too long from this point. And what Christ's concern is, is that the Father would be glorified. What does it mean to glorify? It means to exalt the character of God in such a way that it stimulates honor and reverence and devotion. And he said, glorify me and you together in this act. In verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom he has given him, he may give eternal life. Just a little side issue. That little statement, all that he has given him, refers to all of you who are born again. 
Somehow, some way, we were caught in the love exchange of God between the Father and the Son. In eternity past. And he gave you, if you're born again, if you've been saved, he gave you as a gift to his Son, and his Son would redeem you from your sins and make you an official family member. I don't know about you, but that's, that gets me excited. Um, and, and he says, I'm going to give them eternal life. And then in verse 3, he defines eternal life. Not in terms of time. Not in terms of time. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he says eternal life is not to be measured in time. It's to be measured in terms of a relationship. A relationship with God the Father and God the Son. If you have a relationship with them, guess what you have? You have eternal life. And then he says in verse 4, I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I like that verse because he instructs me on how to glorify my Lord. How do I elevate the character of God? And he tells me that the way he did it is by doing what the Lord gave him to do. He fulfilled the assignment. And so you and I can glorify God as we go into the world with the gospel and we preach the gospel and we disciple those who receive that gospel. That's the way you bring glory to God. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had before the world was. That pre-incarnate glory. Now I want to take you down to verse 13. As I said, I'd like to fill you in on the whole thing, but there's too much for me to cover here, and he won't let me keep you until 1 o'clock in the morning, which would be fine with me, but maybe not with you. Verse 13, but now, he says, I come to you. He's talking to his father. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You understand that you're never, never going to be able to make friends with the world. You understand that there's never going to be a Christian Pride Month. You understand that? The world hates you. What is the world? He's not talking specifically and only about the world of humanity. He's talking about that world of that ordered system of thinking, which is driven by the fallen flesh and develops worldviews and theologies and moral systems that stand in opposition to God, his word, and his people. You are not of that world anymore once you become a believer. And the world is always going to hate you for that reason. Well, that's another sermon I'll preach next time he asks me to come. Verse 14, uh, no, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, why do you think he asked that? Why do you think he said, I don't want to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one? And the answer is they have a job to do while in the world. And that job is to spread the gospel. To tell people the good news. So he said, I'm not asking to take them out of the world. Although I wish he would have said, yeah, Lord, why don't you take them out of the world? And someday he will. He's going to come for his church and he will take us away, which is glorious, wonderful news. But going on, 
Uh, he says after that in verse, where am I? There I am. We're at top of page 16, I should say. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So this is the essential component of sanctification. The title of the message that I gave is what is that essential component of sanctification? And the essential component is truth. And I find it very interesting that he does not say your word is true. He doesn't use an adjective. He uses a noun. Your word is truth. What does he mean by that? The very fiber, the very DNA, the very essential nature of God's beautiful, miraculous written word is truth. It is true. And then he goes on after that. We're going to talk more about that as we go on. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world For their sake, I sanctified myself. By the way, the word sanctified uh, just means to be set apart. In this case, Christ was set apart by his father to be our savior, to be our redeemer, uh, to pay that price that we owed but could not pay. He did not owe, but yet he paid. He came into this world for that purpose the first time. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So, folks, this is so significant. This is such an essential component. One of the reasons that Christ came into the world was not only to save you, but to sanctify you. And the instrument by which he would sanctify you is truth, which is his word. What does he mean by that? It's the application of truth into the context of everyday life. When you do that, then you set yourself apart from the world in which you exist. When you look in those places, when you look in the context of everyday life, and you look to what God's word says about how you should react, and you take that word and you apply it, that's sanctification by truth. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. You know, who, the, who is the people who believed in him because of the apostles' ministry? Do you know who that is? It's all of you. This prayer request, stop and think about this. This is for you. Christ wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be set apart. This is one of the purposes for which he had come and then verse 21, that they may all be one, even as your, you and Father, you and I and me, and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Sanctify them in truth. Let me just tell you that theologians put sanctification into three categories. This is not in your notes, but if you want to, you can copy them down. The first is positional sanctification. Positional, uh, Because of God's elected purposes, he chose you to be set apart unto him. Keep your place in John 17 and look at 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and the first two verses there. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, and with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Did you notice it says, have been sanctified? That's in the perfect tense in the Greek language. And what that describes is a past action that has present result. God sanctified you. And you are called saints. You know what a saint is? A saint is a holy one, a set-apart one. So that's your title, saint. Now, some of you are going to be shocked at that. You guys, you can turn to your wife today and say, aren't you happy to be married to a saint? See what they think. Um, But the truth of the matter is you are a saint by calling because God positionally sanctified you. And then the second category of sanctification is progressive sanctification. That is a lifetime of progress. Let me sum it up to you, and I'll give you a greater detail. It's a lifetime process of moving toward conformity to the image of God's Son. That's progressive sanctification. It's an everyday thing. For a believer, it's an everyday experience. And then finally, ultimate sanctification. Another word for ultimate sanctification is glorification. It's when you are fully conformed to the image of God's Son. That's your future. That's your future. In the past, God chose you to be set apart to Him. In the present, you must be being set apart in Him. And in the future, you will be conformed to the image of God. And what is the essential component in our sanctification? The essential component is truth. Truth. Now, there's never been a day when truth hasn't had an enemy. There has never been a day when truth has not had an enemy. It began all the way at the beginning when an exalted angel decided that he was going to be like the Most High God. By the way, it's always interesting to me when you depart from God, you depart from truth, and you depart from reality. And you begin to accept a delusional concept of self. And so that's the enemy right there from the beginning. Matter of fact, he is never, never speaking the truth. Jesus said of him in John chapter 8 that he's the father of lies. He never speaks the truth. The next enemy, or the next time you see uh, someone coming against truth, was in the garden, right? When Satan came to Adam and Eve, primarily Eve, and enticed her and said to her, Listen, you will not die. If you eat that fruit of that tree, you will not die. Is that true? That's not true. That's deception. That's false. And then he said this, and God knows that if you eat of the fruit, you will become like him. Is that true? No. It's deception. So truth always has an enemy. Now I want you to look in your Bible in Romans chapter 1. 
Romans chapter 1. And by the way, you're going to have some parts to fill in. I wanted to keep you active in this study. Um, If you're OCD, that's going to drive you nuts unless I give you every one of the fill-ins. You come and see me later and we'll get some counsel for you on that. But, you know, that's why I gave you all of these little blanks that you have to fill in. I want you to pay attention. In Romans chapter 1, in verse uh, 17... You have the revelation of God's righteousness, which is found in the gospel message and which is appropriated by faith. Right. That's what Paul was talking about in uh, Romans. Did I say revelation? No, Romans. Okay, I have to. You know, I'm at an age now. Like, for example, right now, I don't remember why I'm here. Would you want to tell me? (laughs) (laughs) Romans chapter one and verse 18 tells you about. The revelation of God's wrath, his righteous anger expressed toward the unrepentant sinner when he brings judgment and punishment upon them. And take note of what he says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what, folks? Suppress the truth. In unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, now you might say, how did they know God? Through natural revelation. The calling card of the existence of God is natural revelation. All that God has made, all of the beauty, all of the symmetry, all of the design, all of the purposefulness in God's creation is a calling card that lets you know that there is a creator. But you see, they held down, suppressed that truth. Because they did not want that truth to have an influence on them. They wanted to be without any sort of accountability, especially to a God who is the creator of everything. So they suppressed the truth. And what happened after that? Let's read on. He says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks But they became what, folks? Futile, absent of substance in their thinking. Futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, the enlightened ones. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Let me ask you this. Where did it all start? Where did this start? Where they now are delusional and they're thinking of themselves as being God or a monkey or a tree or whatever they thought was God. Where did it all start? With the suppression of the truth of the existence of God as revealed in creation. Wonderful truth that comes from that. It's not such a wonderful one, but it's true nonetheless. 
is when you depart from God, you depart from truth. When you depart from truth, you depart from reality. Do you hear that? When you depart from God, you depart from truth. When you depart from truth, you depart from reality. Welcome to 2023. This is where your culture culture is currently. Now take a look at those notes. We're going to help you fill them in. And we're going to move fast because I got a, I got a lot to give you. Under that departure from truth and reality, we talked about that. Let's talk about that suppression of truth. Uh, follow along as I read, and I'll give you the points to put in there. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans informed us that it is the bent of the fallen heart of sinful mankind, and here it is, to suppress truth and to deny its existence, while at the same time accepting unreality as reality. One of the lessons we have to learn in our culture today is we do not help people by affirming them in their delusions. Do you hear me on that? We do not help people by an affirmation of them in their delusions. And that's what they did. They suppressed the truth because they didn't want to have anything to do with God. Fallen mankind in the grip of ungodliness and unrighteousness has a compelling desire to hold down and restrain God's truth. Hold down and restrain God's truth about his existence as witnessed by natural revelation. This desire, if you've got desire or DD, get it off to just desired, is fueled by their passion to gratify their fleshly ambitions without being held accountable to a perfect and holy God for their sinful behavior. Ever since the fall of mankind, there is a bent, there is a proclivity towards sin and rebellion. And there are the fleshly sinful desires that people pursue and they create a rationale that provides some sort of cover for them so that they can sin freely. This is the world we live in when it departs from truth. That last little sentence, in his sinful condition, mankind does what he always does. He replaces God's truth with his foolish speculations and declares himself to be the enlightened wizard of wisdom. This is what we have today. You know, people look down at us, evangelical, born-again Christians. They they say that we're um, uneducated and easily led. We're not enlightened. We're not enlightened to delusion. You see, that's the idea. Now, the next part, B, the subjection of truth to the human reasoning. I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of philosophical history here. You'll you'll get it as I go on. Um, A philosophical perspective that became popular in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century proposed that the idea that truth can be known, but only by human reasoning and science. All that is supernatural was rejected because of its inability to be analyzed by human reasoning and tested by the methods of science. You, you, you probably, some of you may recall that. What that is, and it says this perspective was called modernism. Modernism. And that kind of ruled from, you know, the 19th century into the latter part of the 20th century. And rationalism, which is related to modernism, 
is a fundamental feature of modernism. Rationalism believes that reason and logic are the primary source of sources of the knowledge and truth. So the epistemology of knowledge, where does it come from? What's its nature? It's from the mind of people. And, and through the examinations of the world of science. And, and what they don't understand is what science discovers, and I'm glad for many of their discoveries. I did not know until recently that the first time that an illness was ever, a disease was ever, ever cured was in 1885. So I'm glad that science makes advancements. But you know what science does? It simply discovers the principles that God has put into his operation of his world. That's what they do, you see. But human reasoning and science became a greater authority than scripture. Matter of fact, what happened is they began, it, this made this thought of modernism made its way into mainline denominations. And in the mainline denominations gave birth, when they had this philosophy, to the idea of what is called the social gospel. And the social gospel teaches you this. It's not the saving of your soul that matters. Your individual salvation. What matters is corporate salvation. The salvation of your culture from sin, sickness and um, uh, Governments that treat their citizens poorly and all of that in inequality, that's what you should be concerned with. And they began to say of the Bible that the Bible is a witness of God, but not the word of God. And certainly in the mainline denominations, they rejected um, all of the, uh, the miracles of Christ. In the second paragraph, it says God's word was replaced placed under the microscope of human reasoning and the scrutiny of science and the conclusion of their examination is that miracles recorded in the Bible were rejected and only the moral teaching of Jesus were accepted. It was the acceptance of this philosophy by many mainline denominations that resulted in the acceptance of the idea that the Bible is a witness of God, but not the word of God. And this, pos this position on truth essentially emptied their churches. I don't know about you, uh, Pastor Jeff, but can you imagine standing before these people and not being able to declare to them with certainty that what you're declaring to them is the truth? What do you have to say? Your ideas are just as good as anybody else. And so you, you know, you just get up there and you talk about the necessity to be kind to others and treat others as you would want them to treat you and all that kind of stuff. But you can't say, thus saith the Lord. Well, it went from the subjecting truth to human reasoning, uh, truth to human reasoning and science, to see the rejection of absolute truth. The rejection of absolute truth. Near the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, a new philosophical perspective dominated our culture and is very much alive today. This worldview is referred to as postmodernism. The postmodernist believes that since the mind is so subjective, there is no way to discern objective truth. It amounts to giving up the modernist approach that truth was knowable, 
but only through human reasoning and science. But now the postmodernist declares with an air of certainty that absolute truth is unknowable. By the way, that's your world today. And that's if you're spending $170,000 to send your son or daughter to college in a secular college, that's what they're learning. There is no such thing as knowable truth. I take a look at the next page. Former President Bill Clinton, in a speech he delivered to the students at Yale University, referred to religious conservatives in mocking terms. With audience applause, he suggested that religious conservatives are arrogant in their conviction that there is knowable absolute truth. The notion of knowable absolute truth, from his perspective, was untenable. You, you cannot know truth for certain, you see. Next paragraph. The modern-day postmodernist declares with an attitude of certainty that there is no such thing as a hierarchy of truth. There's truth for you and truth for me, concepts of truth that are relative and the product of an assortment of influencers, such as your family, your culture, your religion, your worldview, and your educational training. Therefore, no one can say that there is knowable absolute truth. There is personal subjective truth, your truth, but not objective, knowable absolute truth that is universally authoritative. Do you remember the guy who, I guess he was transgender, he went from being a a man into a woman and he had an operation uh, and he was on uh, the grounds of the White House and he was exposing himself, and, and he was asked why he did that. And he says, I was simply demonstrating my truth. My truth. See, there's truth for you, but then I have my own truth. And that's the world in which you live. Next paragraph. With the denial of knowledge about absolute truth, There came a shocking break from reality since truth is the, and the word is standard for measuring reality. Since truth is unknowable, there is no means to measure moral absolutes. There's no moral absolutes. Not anymore, according to our culture. Reality refers to the actual state of affairs or the existence of things in the world, like gravity. Human gender is determined by XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. Reality informs us that males cannot conceive and give birth to a child. And I say, all the men say, praise God. I watched it happen a couple of times. Yes. Uh, Sorry, ladies. Uh, Procreation is beyond the capacity of two men or two women who are married to each other. Reality states that you cannot choose your gender or self-identity as an animal. However, if you eliminate the notion of knowable truth, then you eliminate the means for measuring reality and your world goes mad because of its fallen imagination and sinful desires. Essentially, we are back to Romans chapter 1, 18 through 23. Actually, I should have said we're back to the garden. Actually, I should have said we're back to that time when... Satan, driven by pride, said, I will be like the Most High. 
It's accepting unreality as reality. Okay, so how do we reconnect? How do we reconnect to reality? Well, in order to get reconnected to the fact that absolute truth does exist and it's knowable, we must enter into a relationship with the one who is the personification of truth and provides us with a source reference that it is by very nature true and that his word it, it, the word of the and that the word of the word of god is truth as well in the pages of the inspired word the word truth is used some 200 plus times truth is a translation of the greek word aletheia which describes and here's your definition of truth as that which consistently corresponds to reality truth is that which consistently conforms to reality and is therefore, here's your other words, trustworthy, accurate, reliable, and defines reality for us. So the first place where we begin in that next box is that God is truth. Truth is a part of God's DNA. Truth is in God's nature, in God's revelation. King David said about God's revelation in Psalm 119, 116, he said, the sum of your word is truth. And the reason that it's truth is that it comes directly from God. 1 John 5, 19 through 20, I don't have enough time for some of these passages, but let me encourage you, please read that. It just highlights the fact that there's only one true God. Can I tell you something? There's never a God behind an idol. There isn't. Idols are nothing more than the imaginations of people. But there's never a competing God with the one true God. He stands alone. He has no competition. He's the only true God. And he's been kind enough, listen to this, to reveal truth to us as an essential component for how we can live. Well, take a look at three and four. We've got two pages, lots of notes. I'll cover it quickly. Uh, MacArthur in his Truth War says, truth cannot be adequately explained, recognized, understood, or defined without God as the source. Since he alone is eternal and self-existent, and he alone is the creator of all else, he is the fountain of truth. Truth comes from him. It has its origin in him. It's a part of his nature. MacArthur goes on and he says, truth is that which is consistently uh, consistent with mind, character, and glory and being of God. Even more to the point, truth is the self-expression of God. That is the biblical meaning of truth. Because the definition of truth flows from God. Truth is theological. I like that. It's a direct connection with our understanding of who God is and our understanding of truth. R.C. Sproul, I like this a lot, in his book titled, Everyone's a Theologian, stated the following, everything we learn about economics, philosophy, biology, mathematics, 
has to be understood in light of the overarching reality of the character of God. Science begins and ends with God. When it comes to, and the word is understanding, truth, you must begin with the fact that God is truth, the source of truth, and his word is the final arbiter of truth. Now, just let me ask you this. Are you convinced of that? Are you absolutely convinced that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is true? Because that is an essential component to your sanctification. Every time God gives you a mandate, every time God gives you an injunction, every time God gives you a directive for you to apply, in the application of that injunction or directive, you are applying truth which is the instrument of sanctification. You're setting yourself more and more apart to God. Do you understand? Very critical. Well, we'll run to these next one. Jesus is described in the Bible as a personification of truth. You remember John chapter 14, verse 6? He says, I am the way. And what else? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father by me, but by me. He is the personification of truth. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, grace and truth, uh, our control or the fullness of grace and truth is in Jesus. Jesus testified of the truth. That should be John chapter 18, 37 through 38. If you have 19, that's wrong. I wish I had time to get to that, but that's his interaction with, remember, Pilate? And and Jesus said to Pilate, I have come here to testify of the truth. And what did Pilate say? What is truth? For Pilate, he already was a postmodernist way back in the first century. There's no truth. What are you talking about? What is truth? And he did not know that he was talking to truth face to face. And the one who reveals truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. Those passages back that up. The Holy Spirit illuminates the believer's comprehension of truth. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 14 says that that's the ministry of the spirit of God. When you're saved, that's how come you comprehend. That's how come you understand. Because the spirit of God in you illuminates you to an understanding of truth. So you can apply it. Biblical truth, however, is unknowable experientially to the lost and the unsaved person. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The devil and those who belong to him are strangers to the truth, enemies of the truth, and don't speak the truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually appraised. That means they have a value that he doesn't understand. Because he's dead in his trespasses and sins. If you've ever had a friend, a neighbor, a a mate, grandma, grandpa, who seems so indifferent to the truth, that indifference is a manifestation of spiritual death. And when God quickens them to life, you read about it in Ephesians chapter 2, and God quickens them to life, one of the benefits of that 
It's not only that they, they come to Christ and they are saved, but now they have a comprehension, a capacity to understand the truth so that they can live in correspondence with the truth. Well, number three, their truth is the chief instrument of sanctification. Um, according to John seventeen seventeen, the primary instrument in progressive sanctification is the word of God applied the truth applied truth into the context of everyday life with the assistance of the spirit of truth who is the source of one's forward movement and one's sanctification it's truth and the power of the spirit the source and the forward movement and in page 4 Progressive sanctification of Christians is a lifelong process. It involves both relational component, separation from participating in and being influenced by evil, and a moral component, growth in holiness and moral purity in attitudes and thoughts and actions. This occurs in the truth. That is, as Christians believe, think, and act according to the truth in relationship to God, themselves, and their world. So says the ESV Study Bible. Truth comprises the entire Bible, for Jesus says, what? Your word is truth. Uh, By the way, in John chapter 8, the next little section, is truth is knowable. Truth is knowable. In John chapter 8, in verse, I don't have time to really get through it. Uh, Boy, I don't have time. The rapture occurs at 8.04. I only got a couple of minutes. Um, but uh, truth is noble. In John chapter 8, Jesus was telling some Jews who had believed in him, probably not as Savior and Lord, but probably as the Messiah, based upon observing his miracles and such. And he wanted to make sure that they understood that there was a requirement for being a disciple. And he says, you are my disciple if you literally keep on continuously continuing in my word, in my teaching." And guess what he says next? And you will know the truth. (laughs) The knowable truth you will know. And by the way, that's more than intellectually. That's experientially. Because the byproduct of knowing the truth of Christ's teaching is a spiritual freedom from the mastery of sin. He said, and the truth will set you free. I just cringe when I hear politicians use that terminology. It has nothing to do with anything they're saying. He's saying, you will know the truth in my teaching. And that will procure for you freedom from the mastery of sin in the application of that truth. Truth is number, what I got, two number fours in here? I'll make sure I correct that next time. <laughs> So number five, truth is the primary weapon for spiritual warfare. Our spiritual warfare, folks, is a battle not for territory. It's a battle for truth. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it describes that we come against these fortresses. What it's talking about is those structures that people build up to protect themselves from the truth and accept delusion as truth. And we come to them with the truth. 
especially about the knowledge of God. We set aside all their speculations and we tell them the truth about who God is. So spiritual warfare, not fighting for territory. It's not binding Satan. I mean, if all the people have been binding Satan, he should be bound by now. He's going to be bound. Just read about him, Revelation 20. We don't attack him. We simply declare the truth. And remain steadfast in that. Okay, number six. Truth is the center of biblical discernment. The only way to be able to distinguish between truth and error which is discernment, is to have truth. And so let me just give you these applications. You write them in. Unfortunately, I don't have any more time, uh, but let me give you them. You could write them in in terms of application. Truth must regulate our conduct. That passage in 2 John chapter 3, verse 4 especially, says that he loves to, John says, I love to hear that my children are walking in the truth. They're ordering their behavior governed by truth. Two, truth must govern our conversation. We must speak to one another in truth. Truth must govern our worship. Jesus said the kind of worshiper the Father seeks are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit is the subjective aspect of your worship. And truth is the objective aspect of your worship. That's why here in this church, you don't find any statues and you don't find any people getting slain in the spirit or laughing in the spirit or having some sort of bizarre forms of worship. Because truth won't tolerate that. We learn the truth about the character of God and the deeds of God, and that prompts the worship of God. Where do we learn about the character of God and the deeds of God that prompts the worship of God in the word of God? You see? So our worship is governed by truth. Truth is the basis of our convictions, the things we stand upon. Truth can be known, that John 8 passage. The gospel, I love this. The gospel is described as the word of truth. And the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We must handle accurately the word of truth. That's the final thing. Handle accurately. Um, For those of us who are in the ministry and have the job of uh, preaching and teaching the word of God, we have to keep in mind that we have to be exact in our interpretation and understanding as much as we possibly can because we're handling the word of truth. An excellent pastor never assigns a meaning to a passage. He works hard to extract the intended meaning so that he can give it to you. Because an accurate interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. Anything other than that is your own attitudes, your own Ideas And so handling accurately the truth. By the way, we're to speak the truth, aren't we, in love? To speak the truth in love. We're not to use truth like an ice pick or like a hammer. But we're to use it as a soothing salve or an anointment 
that stings at first application, but makes all things better. Cindy and I were talking. I remember when I got a gash on my leg as a kid, and I went home to my mom, and my mom said, oh, we've got to put something on, and it was peroxide. And um, I said, I don't want that. She said, well, you're going to get a disease and die, an infection and die. I said, okay, I'll take it. She said, no. And she poured that on my leg, and it was bubbling up, and boy, did it hurt. But guess what? You couldn't tell now. It healed. So we speak the truth. And sometimes at the first application, it hurts. I don't know how you felt when someone told you you're a wretched sinner and you can't save yourself. That hurts. But is that the truth? It's the truth. You see. So we speak the love, uh, truth and love. Let me just quote Jim Berg there at the very bottom of page four. And, and I thank you for your patience. This is a lot of information to give you. Um, I got so excited about it, I went overboard, you know, how typically that goes. But at the very bottom, reality, that is truth, is that there is a God in heaven. Reality is that he has made us and we are accountable to him. Reality is that God has spoken and what he says matters eternally. Reality is that God's son, Jesus Christ, has died for the sins of the world and that he has risen again and that whoever believes in him is given eternal life. That's Jim Begg's book. By the way, the name of it is Changed into His Image. It's a great book on sanctification. I've been reading it uh, as a part of our assignment for our Forge class and held at our church. So there you have it, folks. The world will not accept the truth. And the only way that a dead man accepts the truth is if God intervenes into his life and quickens him to life. And then the truth is acceptable. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, tonight has been a great time to just contemplate this whole matter of truth, how essential it is to our sanctification, uh, that we cannot really be sanctified without the direction without the declaration of truth guiding us, being the GPS for our life. And I thank you for this church. Thank you for Pastor Jeff and the elders. Thank you for the people who are so faithful to be here all the time. Bless this place. It is a place where truth is proclaimed. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.